0: 3D-printed rocket is set for its maiden voyage. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Relativity Space's Terran-1 rocket is set to take flight from Cape Canaveral this week. It's mostly built with 3D-printed parts and will be the first of its kind should it reach orbit during its first launch. Relativity Space has ambitious plans for its novel manufacturing plan for rockets, With even bigger rockets on the horizon we'll speak with the company's ceo about the stakes of this upcoming test launch then relativity space's new rocket is joining a crowded launch market so where does it fit in we'll speak with one industry analyst about the state of the private launch industry that's ahead on are we there yet here on 90.7 wmfe news The Terran-1 rocket set to take flight this week is 85% 3D printed. The 11-story tall rocket will launch from Cape Canaveral on a demonstration mission. Eventually, Relativity Space wants to increase the amount of parts of the rocket manufactured by 3D printing, relying on huge 3D printing heads at its Long Beach, California headquarters. And the company isn't stopping at this 110-foot tall rocket either. Here to talk about the historic flight and the path ahead for the company is Tim Ellis. He's the co-founder and CEO of Relativity Space. He begins our conversation describing the excitement at the company.
1: Honestly, it feels quite surreal more than anything else. And then the second thing that comes to mind is just proud. Uh, of course, when we started the company seven years ago, we didn't know 3D printing worked at all. And I thought there was a 50-50 chance within three months we'd find out it wasn't possible, period. And so to overcome those challenges to now have a rocket on the launch pad ready to go that's uh, 3D printed, Um the first potential methane rocket to fly to orbit uh, in the world. And then we'd be the first company to reach orbit on the first attempt as a privately backed company. Should we get all the way there? Uh, there's a lot at stake for this launch, but I'm feeling very proud.
0: Seven years in in the grand scheme of things. And, and when it comes to spaceflight development, doesn't seem like a very long time, right? I mean, this was a, a, a very quick development when it comes to building a rocket from scratch and, and with such a novel idea as 3D printing it, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, seven years maybe sounds like a long time, but when I started with $100,000 in student loan debt in a WeWork and was 25 and my co-founder was 23, um, coming out of Blue Origin and then SpaceX, respectively, it, it really went by quite quickly. And you know, as I reflect on that journey, you know, I was at Blue Origin as a propulsion engineer, started the metal 3D printing division, working with Jeff Bezos and senior exec team. And just realizing that in that time period, I founded this company. We built a brand new manufacturing technology nobody's seen before, and a rocket simultaneously. And then we've got one sitting on the pad ready to go um, before you know others have gotten a chance to even build an orbital rocket at all
0: yet. Uh, I think is pretty phenomenally fast. Yes, you you, you mentioned this that you know, Terran One could tick a lot of boxes for the firsts. Um, one of them being the first rocket to reach orbit on its first launch by a privately funded company. We know that a lot of times the first launch does not work out with 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 mm-hmm. a, 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 a first launch attempt. Are your expectations tempered because of this? I mean what what are your expectations? What's the percentage that this thing is actually going to succeed on on first launch?
1: Yeah, of course. Well, I think uh, you know, in, in the rocket industry, predictions you, know, you probably shouldn't fully make. Um, I feel like we're ready to launch, and if any team is you know is is ready as ever been to make it on the first try, it's ours. Uh, we've done very significant ground testing uh, the rocket primary structure specifically since it's three D printed entirely. Um, we've already passed structural testing on the ground, which is Uh, above and beyond what max stress we expected to see during flight. Uh, at the point of max dynamic pressure, which is about 80 seconds in, into the flight lifting off uh, from the launch pad. So I think that's for me the biggest inflection point that we want to get past. Of course, proving that on the ground is really huge and substantial from a technical viability and engineering sense, but I think viscerally seeing it actually past that point in flight um, is, is really uh, checking the box to show 3D printing a rocket is viable and that it, it does work. To your question on getting all the way to orbit, it would be unprecedented. We'd be the first. So, from that standpoint, the historical chance of success is 0% based on other companies' uh, track records. But uh, we're certainly gunning for it. And certainly, this rocket is capable of achieving orbit with the sophistication
0: of development that we've undergone. And I don't mean for this question to seem like you look tired, but what's keeping you up at night? (laughs) I may look tired. (laughs) You don't. You don't. You look great. You look great. But what's keeping you up at night, whether it's things that are in your hands or or, or things that aren't in your hands? I mean, what are some of the concerns that you have these few days before launch?
1: Yeah, of course. Honestly, I think what's candidly keeping me up uh, night the most right now is just uh you know march 8th we're of course very excited for this to be our first launch attempt we're ready to go we're going to be ready to rock um we've done the ground testing and so so our team feels ready but weather and other things out of our control certainly could cause uh potential you know delays or not launching on the 8th um we have a backup launch window on the 9th and then you know we, we would go from there but i think really it's just um you know how, how kind of much the weather and, and other sort of uh, un- uncertain factors will will uh, control. You know when we actually light up all nine engines and then let go of the rocket. Um, I think I just want to get get to that point and see this see this baby fly. We're definitely ready, and uh, I'm definitely excited to see this thing fly.
0: I know you're thinking of, of of beating that record and being the first orbital vehicle on its first attempt. If it doesn't happen. Um, how quickly yeah. can you turn around from that and and you know is the entire business riding on this this first launch being successful or is failure built into the plan?
1: Yeah, I would say failure certainly is built into the plan. I think really it goes back to what we're trying to achieve with this. and what's very important is that while you know, Terran one is the rocket on the launch pad, We have sold almost $1.7 billion worth of customer contracts for a much larger reusable rocket named Terran R. So that vehicle has been in development for several years now. We have hundreds of people and have already spent hundreds of millions of dollars in development for launch facilities, test facilities. We have our first full engine that we've built. It's a 258,000 pound thrust, uh, liquid oxygen, liquid methane engine. We actually just tested the thrust chamber for the first time at 100% power level at our test site in NASA's Stennis Space Center. And so we have a lot of momentum towards this much larger launch vehicle. And I really see Terran 1, and, and as it was originally envisioned, Uh, we knew that there was a need for a medium to heavy lift uh, launch vehicle like Terran R in the market. Uh, SpaceX has been so dominant in the commercial space, but there has to be a second quickly moving disruptive launch company in the world to serve all of the demand we're seeing across different satellites and and customer payloads. And so that's really where my mind is focused on is on being a customer centric rocket company and really focusing on the biggest possible market opportunities. So for me, you know, I really think we're going to get a lot of data and learning from this first flight of Terran 1. But really what's important is to roll that data and learning about our 3D printing approach, about methane propellants and propulsion systems into Terran R and get that vehicle to market as quickly as we can and have a very meaningful flight rate as quickly as we can, Uh, because that's really what's going to drive and scale our business opportunity in the long run.
0: So success or fail with Terran 1, you're going to have significant data that's going to be fed into the development of Terran R, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I I think how you get to the best possible rocket is you have the fastest
1: rate of learning. So in many ways, that's our company culture. That's how we operate. It's how we develop quickly and take smart calculated risks, including this first flight of Terran 1. But then also that's where the 3D printing technology is a big advantage because we can test and iterate and then reprint and rebuild changes in the design very quickly with fewer limitations on factory tooling and traditional manufacturing techniques. And so we're going to continue to to build on top of that increasing pace of learning and increasing pace of development, uh, just now anchored by more flight data. Um, There's still things you cannot test on the ground. So that's really the last remaining things we're testing in flight. And most of those problems are actually Rocket problems that are, are, you know, while still difficult, they're not ones that uh, necessarily, um, you know, cannot be learned in a way that then feed into those physics models we'll use for the bigger one. Mm -hmm. Just rocket science, right? Piece of cake. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, as it turns out, the 3D printer has been uh, just as hard to develop as the rocket. Um, Really? You know, that's one thing. Oh, for sure. Yes. Uh, The world, as it turns out, the world's largest metal 3D printer. Uh, is not easy to develop and we've had <laughs> to overcome thought? a lot of challenges <laughs> yeah we've had to overcome a lot of challenges to get it to work but we've made immeasurable a, a progress in the last couple of years towards that and uh, to, to now have that technology working we are building full-scale parts of uh, Terran R as well um, so excited to talk about more of those updates after the launch.
0: Going back to this launch attempt, Tim, what, what can we expect um, on launch day and, and and what are you launching into orbit, if if anything?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, So we're doing a YouTube live stream. I'm super excited that we're doing this. Uh, we're launching at a very public launch site in Cape Canaveral. There's a lot of storied history there and our own launch site at LC16. Uh, which, is, which is our own dedicated site. Um, but, you know, there's public viewing areas. People are going to watch it and see what happens no matter what. And I, I felt having a, a live stream was great to give context to, to what's happening and give uh, the public a lot of transparency to, to what we're doing. Um, and that's hosted by our, two of our own engineers. So I'm really excited. We've got two people that actually worked on building uh, Relativity as a company and this rocket to, to talk us through what's happening on launch day. And then, um, yeah, I'll of course be launching from the launch control center. Uh, we'll have a dedicated team there operating in our firing room and our support center uh, on console. Um, and I'm quite quite excited for that. And then, as far as the the payload, so we or it's it's not a customer payload. It's really what I'd call more of a memento. And so this particular object we we found in an old uh, case stored in our fac- deep in our factory, uh, the very first failed 3D print that we ever did. So this is from six and a half years ago, w- when we built the first prototype of our large scale printer. Of course, nobody had ever 3D printed at that scale before. So it was a failed part. And we cut it up and put it into a, a little memento. And I think launching that on this first rocket is very indicative of all of the thousands of challenges we had to overcome from that first trial to actually getting a rocket on the pad that works. And uh, I think it's indicative of all of the challenges I'm ready to step up to the plate and overcome
0: after this first launch, no matter what happens. Quite poetic that your failures are are being launched on your successes. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Finally, Tim, it's it's taken you and your team seven years to get to this point. Where is Relativity seven years from now? Well,
1: seven years and now, should we execute to plan? I mean, we will be firmly established as that second quickly moving disruptive launch company. I think we already have early signs and, and potential that we could be that. I think especially having... The the nearly $1.7 billion in customer arrangements is quite significant. Uh, Those are launch service agreements, uh, which are very substantial contracts to to launch these uh, payloads. So we're very focused on getting to a high reuse cadence quite quickly um, and and just a very operational high uh, launch rate vehicle with terran r and so that's going to be the the primary thing in seven years but then at that point you know really relativity has a broader vision we of course want to be you know one of the companies going after making mars happen and putting a million people on mars that was part of the founding vision And we have a mission that we're uh, expecting and really gunning to to launch to Mars at the soonest possible launch window. And so within seven years, we also should have a commercial payload on Mars in partnership with Impulse Space. And that's a big step towards
0: that long-term mission. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tim Ellis, best of luck to you and your team on launch day as it it quickly approaches.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Brendan. Appreciate it.
0: That was Tim Ellis, CEO of Relativity Space. The company is hosting a live stream of the launch attempt on YouTube, which is scheduled for Wednesday, March 8th from 1 to 4 p.m. Ellis has been no stranger to the show. We've spoken with him quite a bit as his company developed the rocket set to launch this week. I'll link a few of my favorite conversations with Ellis and his team on our website. Be sure to check out WMFE.org slash more. Still to come, the launch market is crowded, so where does Relativity Space fit in? A conversation with Quilty Analytics Director of Research, Caleb Henry. That's when Are We There Yet returns here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. Relativity Space is joining a crowded launch market. Analysts are tracking dozens of launch vehicles aiming to capitalize on a growing need to put things into orbit. So what's driving this need and what's the outlook for companies like Relativity Space with so many competitors vying for peace of this booming industry? Here to talk more is Caleb Henry, Director of Research at Quilty Analytics, a financial research firm focusing on the space and satellite industry. Henry begins our conversation describing the current launch market. Relativity is entering the launch
2: market at a really interesting time. If you dial the clock back a decade ago and you looked at small and heavy launch, really there were three main players that dominated the launch industry. The U.S. was essentially obsolete Um, the shuttle program was too expensive for the commercial sector and rockets that supported the military were also prohibitively expensive for most other buyers so if you were going to buy a rocket launch for whatever kind of mission you had you were very often looking at uh, rockets supplied by europe through the arian program you were looking at russia through proton or soyuz or you were looking at the commercial venture sea launch which was successful for a time until they had some rocket troubles, and then SpaceX emerged and sort of took their place. Today, you know, we look at an industry where there's around a hundred different launch vehicles that are in development around the world, uh, and the general acceptance or you know, the general thought industry wide uh, is that uh, the industry can actually support more than three launch providers today. Uh, Whereas that was kind of the benchmark in the past, at least for heavy lift. Uh, And I know Relativity is starting with their smaller rocket, uh, Mm -hmm. but I think for a long time they've had their eyes on a much bigger portion of the market. So they're in an interesting space because they are pursuing a a market where SpaceX has become a champion, where a lot of new rockets uh, that previously previously looked like there were too many in small launch and too many in heavy launch. That I would say, with the emergence of commercial mega constellations, commercial and military, actually, uh, the demand for launch has grown,
0: and it actually creates a much more viable
2: space for multiple players to exist.
0: I want I want to get to that that need for launch in a minute, but you mentioned something that was kind of shocking to me. So, you're saying that the industry says that there can be more than you know three launchers, but there's currently 100 vehicles being uh, in development <laughs> right now. I mean, it, it, that's a pretty wide margin, right? I mean, oh, yeah. it, the market doesn't need all 100 of those vehicles, does it? It does
2: not. Uh, and you won't see 100 new vehicles reach launch pads. And even some that do reach launch pads, you may not see many launches, which is you know, unfortunate. Um, I think companies have learned that scaling up to production can be just as hard as a first launch. And then, because this industry has evolved so fast, a lot of the rockets that were sketched out on paper—you know, maybe even gone through like several iterative design processes—people thought that they had finalized the design, only to learn that the market had sort of moved past that. Uh, and relativity has experienced the same thing, even with the, you know, the rocket that they're soon to launch. You know, the Terran vehicle, the Terran One vehicle was originally. Um, a little smaller, you know, had a smaller payload fairing, had a slightly lower uh, lift capacity. And, you know, it was just, its in general, a smaller vehicle. They've had to upsize it. And so what we've seen is not only has there been a large number of companies and governments that have been investing in vehicles in pursuit of the launch market, but they have also had to adapt and change to try and have the most optimized vehicle for the opportunities that are out there. Um, and it's really challenging. So it's delayed a number of vehicles. Um, I think it's forced some to combine, cancel their plans or create new ones. You know, quilcy Analytics, we're constantly updating our own launch database of what's still being worked on, what hasn't had any announcements or developments, and what's changed. Uh, and it's very dynamic.
0: Let's talk about a bit of that Kind of the satellite market that's driving these launch vehicles. You, you mentioned that um, it's a lot of these constellations, these these internet constellations, both civilian and, and military constellations, that's kind of driving the need here. Um, I mean, is that an accurate assessment for me to say that that's that's kind of what all of these companies are, are latching onto? Is that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of these satellites that need to get into space? Yes. So. In short, when you look
2: at the early explosion of launch vehicle entrepreneurship, a lot of that was centered around the CubeSat, you know, it got popular, I want to say it was 2014, 2015, where CubeSat started to get really popular. And then you had this whole new cadre of vehicles that popped up. You had the Rocket Lab Electron, you had Virgin Orbit's Launcher One, uh, even Firefly's original rocket was a lot smaller than the one that they're pursuing today. Uh, Between between then and now, the focus has shifted to these mega constellations, in particular satellites that typically weigh over 100 kilograms, maybe a few hundred kilograms, uh, with the purpose of providing internet access from space to the whole world, or, or very much of it. Uh, And in order to support those kinds of launch needs, you end up needing uh, bigger rockets and you end up needing more rockets. So I would say historically, the industry kind of put spacecraft into three buckets. There were your military spacecraft, which are often big and heavy and expensive. There were your science spacecraft that could be big, could be small, but were always expensive and these precious payloads. Uh, And then you had your commercial geostationary satellites. Uh, which were big and, and I would argue were the, the driving force behind the, the commercial market as well. Today, with the emergence of mega constellations, we've seen the commercial share of the market outpace the growth of military satellites or science satellites so that they have become the driving force uh, for launch. Uh, and that's what's created this new opportunity uh, with the caveat that um, Demand can be very, very opportunistic because you saw with Amazon Kuiper, they distributed their launch contracts between three different providers. But you know, this is kind of like the space industry equivalent of whale hunting. You know, if you get one of these mega constellation contracts, it can support your business for years. You know, it can fund new launcher technologies. It allows you to keep your business going very steadily in a way that historically launch companies only looked to governments to do. Mm-hmm. And that's what the big change is.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that kind of a, a temporary need, though? I'm thinking, you know, once you get these big satellite constellations in orbit, then there's no need to be launching multiple payloads and having multiple launch vehicles. I guess, in a, in a sense, is 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 that sustainable to a launcher's business?
2: Right. That's a, a very good question. Yeah. I think that the jury is still out on what replenishment rates will look like. The megaconstellation sector is so new, one of the philosophies that's been championed in that area is this iterative development where you have satellites that have much shorter lifespans than they did in the past. You know, geostationary communication satellites and military satellites will often have design lives of you know, 15 years And then they can last even longer. It's not uncommon for these satellites to last two decades. Mm -hmm. The design lives that are being talked about for low earth orbit constellations are often five years or seven years or 10 years. Uh, So you're looking at something that's considerably shorter than the norm. A question that I have is, will that stay the same, particularly as these constellations evolve? Or will they start to increase the life expectancy of their spacecraft and perhaps diminish their own need for the launch? Right now, we're we're in a phase where we're seeing this aggressive build-out. Starlink is launching regularly. OneWeb has almost finished their first-generation constellation while already ordering launches from relativity, no less, for their second-generation constellation. You've got Kuiper with multiple dozens and dozens of launches under contract, the space development agency on the military side, procuring missions, uh, and Europe preparing their own constellation. Uh, So there's a lot of activity going on right now. Um, And we're certainly at a, a high watermark for the need for launch, but it's a curious question whether or not that demand will stay. I think it will be steady, but I don't know how big or small it will be in the long run.
0: Mm hmm. Looking at the short term, um, you know, we, we talked to Tim Ellis, who's the CEO of Relativity Space for this episode. Um, he mentioned that, you know, the company has something like one point seven billion dollars in, in launch contracts already, um, even without a successful launch. But I, I, I guess my question is, how important is this first launch for Relativity Space? Do they have to succeed on first launch? Many of these companies have not um, uh, on their first attempts. What's at stake here for, for Relativity Space?
2: Yeah, so a uh, first launch is always important, right? Because it's the culmination of years and years of work and lots of dollars invested. Uh, I think that this launch is, is certainly important. I wouldn't downplay it, but you know, Relativity is going to be looking for... Uh, you know, they're going def- I guess defining success is up to them, but often with first launches... Uh, success includes you know, getting to the launch pad, a successful liftoff, hopefully successful reaching of orbit, uh, and then payload delivery. And even if they fall short of you know, that final goal of payload delivery, uh, it's really a learning step to figure mm-hmm. out as much as possible so that you can operationalize your launch activity. Uh, relativity is also unique in the fact that they don't, plan a large number of Terran 1 launches. They announced the Terran R program with their much larger, almost Falcon 9 sized vehicle that will compete more directly with SpaceX and Arianespace and others very early on. Uh, And so their first launch is important, but I think more so than the average company, it really is a learning step for them to get to a bigger vehicle and pursue the market that they ultimately want
0: to go after. That was Caleb Henry, Director of Research at Quilty Analytics, a financial research firm focusing on the space and satellite industry. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or essentially wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.